You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things to them, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Rob. Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church. It's, always, it's once again a privilege to be with you as we look into God's Word. And I'm excited to dig in and get our hands dirty in the book of Acts. Um, new books are always exciting. It's, there's new stuff we're going to look at. Um, a couple quick facts just about Acts before we get started, um, at least with the text. Uh, we got 28 chapters. So if you think back of our time through Galatians, we had six chapters, and that took us, what, five months? <laughs> and so now we got 28 chapters to cover. So uh, we have a lot of space to cover. Uh, there'll be times like today where we got 11 verses that we'll kind of go through. There'll be times where we got chapters to deal with. And there's, a, there's reasons for that. Uh, the book of Acts is written kind of like a narrative, a story almost. Uh, we have Luke, who was a doctor, who's recording for us what had happened in the early church. So this is much different than, say, the book of Galatians, right? What's Paul doing in Galatians? He's like, this is the gospel, this is not the gospel, right? A lot of imperatives, a lot of commands, a lot of direction. Um, we call this... When it comes to genres, uh, the difference between prescriptive, which is the epistles, and descriptive, where here at Acts, Luke is describing events for us. And, and so what that means is we're going to come to the text at times a little bit differently, right? Uh, I was thinking about this this morning. My wife and I, we think way different. I think if you ask her, you, you're like, hey, what kind of books do you love more than others? She's like, give me Paul! She thinks like a lawyer. Paul thinks like a lawyer. He writes like a lawyer. Give me Paul. Where I'm not like that. I love Acts. I think in circles. I kiss the Blarney Stone and I I make things up along the way. Which means there's a lot of gaps. 
Describe, I like to describe things and occasionally exaggerate, you know. So there's a different way of writing and understanding how to approach these particular genres. Also in Acts, uh, we're going to bump into a ton of issues. <laughs> uh, if you like controversy, we're going to find a few within Acts. I mean, if you just kind of start flipping through Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, I mean, we got everything from like, you know, Pentecost, tongues of fire coming down, people speaking in tongues. We got, what do we do with that? We got Ananias and Sapphira, like, just dropping dead. What's going on there? We got the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and then all the way to chapter 28, Paul's in Rome, and what does that mean? What does that mean for us? I mean, there's a, there's a lot we're going to be able to, um, to talk about and look at. That's why I love Acts. It's going to touch on various areas of what it means to be a church. All the variety that we see in, in Acts means that there's more than one way of doing something. Um, when it comes to the book of Acts, there's more than one way to kind of describe the major themes, uh, the major speeches. Acts is 30% speeches, and to describe also the events in Acts. I mean, just consider the various titles that people give Acts. So we have, you know, which you all might understand, Acts uh, the book of Acts, and other authors have said it's Acts of the Apostles, which is a little more accurate to later translations of the Greek text. We have others who say this is this should be called Acts of the Holy Spirit. The point being, throughout the book of Acts, you see God the Holy Spirit at work in the life of the New Testament church. Another particular uh, author and commentator said it should be called the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what we should call Acts. The point he's trying to make is we see what the risen Christ is doing in the New Testament church. Whatever title we give Acts, the content from beginning to end is remarkable. And as some of the titles kind of suggest, why? And we will see in the book of Acts, how the fame and the name of Jesus Christ is taken and is being taken to every nook and cranny on this earth. As we journey through the book of Acts, I want us to see that the mission of the Spirit-empowered church is to be a witness within God's unstoppable an ever-advancing kingdom. Let me say that again. I want us to see that the mission of Redemption Hill Church, the Spirit-empowered church right here, is to be a witness within God's unstoppable, ever-advancing kingdom. We want to get on God's mission as we journey through the book of Acts. I also want you to see that the God who was at work during the time of apostles is at work right here. The same God that shook the foundations of the prison to free Paul and Silas is still able to act in the same way today. What, what I'm getting after is this. I want us to walk away with a bigger picture, a bigger vision of God. I mean, I, I was kind of convicted by this. Like, my picture of God sometimes is like this. And I want Acts to, to show me, show all of us, it is much bigger. The book of Acts is going to, um, at times, put us on our knees in prayer. 
And at times, the book of Acts is going to cause us to get off, off our knees and go witness. To go share the gospel with hellbound friends, family, and strangers. So all that is an introduction to our marathon called Acts. Um, as a reminder, I've shared this in previous weeks, we'll take a few breaks as we go from Acts 1 to Acts 28. We'll take a, a break in Advent. We'll do Jonah in early 2020. And I would imagine there'll be one more break, intentional sermon series break as we kind of go through Acts. But I, as we go through Acts, I'm trusting that God is going to continue to shape us and shape this church plant to be a New Testament church, a new covenant church. That's what I'm trusting God to do. So this morning, I want to show you from Acts 1, verses 1 and 11, several themes that show up in these 11 verses, but they're actually woven throughout all of the book of Acts. So think about a tapestry for a moment. Uh, a tapestry is a piece of thick fabric with pictures or designs formed by weaving colored threads throughout the tapestry. You know, they, they can be beautiful, beautiful designs, beautiful pictures made out of thread. Uh, like a tapestry, these individual themes are woven together to create a picture of what it looks like to be a New Testament church in God's kingdom. You could also consider this particular sermon kind of like a movie trailer. You know, I, I remember, I mean, I'm a Star Wars freak. I could watch the same Star Wars 50 times in a row and I'd be completely comfortable with it. But when the next one comes out in December, I'm looking at that trailer, right? And I'm like, what are the themes here? What are we going to see? And hopefully that trailer is going to be like, I'm going to be paying my ticket to go watch it. So hopefully this particular sermon kind of does the same for you. What's next? Let's see what God is doing in Acts. So here are the themes that I want us to see in today's text, but also throughout Acts. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is so important. That's going to be one theme that we read today and it continues on. And we got the Holy Spirit, the active work of the Holy Spirit. That'd be the second theme. And then the mission of God. I not only want to show you these themes, but I want us to see how these themes connect to everyday life, right? Um, we want to take God's word from the head to your heart, and to where God has you on a daily basis, your workplace, your neighborhood, um, etc. A little context before we get to, the, get to the theme there, get to those three themes. The first avenue to understanding these themes is to know they didn't pop up out of nowhere, right? Um, we have several clues in verse 1 about how Acts is connected to other parts of the Bible, in verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus is the combining of two Greek words of God and love, so lover of God, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first book in the Gospel, Luke, opens like this, to write an orderly account for you, O excellent, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. What this means is that Acts is volume two of part two. Um, we do not know the identity of Theophilus, uh, who Luke is writing to. Uh, there have been educated guesses. Is he a part of a Roman senate? And he commissioned Luke to write these accounts 
about Jesus as Theophilus, a pseudonym, an aristocrat who's trying to protect his name from Roman authorities, so we don't really know who he is. What we do know is that the gospel writer Luke made it his goal to chronicle the life of Jesus, the gospel, and chronicle the expansion of the church of Jesus, Acts. What this means is that the gospel Luke and Acts are are connected in very clear ways. Indeed, every book is connected to the greater storyline of the Bible, but this particular uh, set is connected. The theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about Luke's act, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. The starting point, the fundamental thing, is that Christianity is about Jesus. Now, he's talking about the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. It's about Jesus. I've written to you already about him, Luke said in effect, and I'm going to tell you more about him. Christianity is not a teaching, it is a person. It is not merely a moral outlook that is to be applied in the realm of politics. You start with a historical person. Luke was a pure historian. He is giving an account of events and facts. The Lord Jesus Christ was the theme of the preaching of the early church. He is the theme of the gospel of Luke. He is the theme of Acts of the Apostles. It's all about Jesus. So let's get into it. Here's the first thread woven throughout the tapestry of Acts. From the gospel of Luke to Acts, the kingdom of God becomes the dominant thread woven throughout the tapestry, the kingdom of God. It's the brightest color. It's the thread on the tapestry that helps make sense of all the other threads. Here's here's verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days. And what is he doing? What is Jesus doing? He's speaking about the kingdom of God. Notice between the resurrection and the ascension, the topic around the dinner table for the disciples and with with Jesus, the topic was about the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus was proactive about this teaching during during his earthly ministry, you know, before the cross. Jesus says the reason why he was sent by the Father was to proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke says this in Luke 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Why? For I was sent for this purpose. Like, whoa. Like, when we think about Jesus, like, we kind of thumb through and read the Gospels. I ask the question, what's Jesus doing? Why? He's teaching about the kingdom of God. So in Luke 4, we read the purpose statement of Jesus. Jesus, what are you here for? to preach about God's kingdom. It does cause us to ask the question, like, what is the kingdom of God? We've got we to settle that so we can really understand what we're getting into with the book of Acts. There, there are a variety of ways to define the kingdom of God. It can be nuanced in many, many more ways. Um, he, here's a little bit of what I think the kingdom of God means in the Gospels and 
Acts. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign rule over all creation. In God's kingdom, authority and sovereignty are exercised over everything God has created. There is not a rock that gets turned without God's decree. The wind blows, the wind blows at the will of God. The justification and salvation of a soul only happens because of God's sovereign choice. In God's realm, in his creation, he is 100% sovereign. Period. Now, for sure, what I've said has always applied since the foundation of the world, but the incarnation of Jesus started something new. God coming to earth fulfilled promises. God coming to earth meant a new covenant. God coming to earth removed the veil, the path of salvation, through the Son. All the Gospels tell us Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God, and Jesus, indeed, Jesus is the kingdom of God. Now, in the New Testament, there are two senses of the kingdom of God. In one sense, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, which is what we read in the Gospels. There is a second sense that the kingdom of God is yet to come. So what are we talking about here? This seems confusing. Is it here or is it not? Well, it's both. It's here. It's to come. Theologians have called this the already, not yet. And what do we mean by that? I think this is right. At Jesus' first advent, the kingdom was introduced and in many ways established but it will not be until Jesus' second advent that the kingdom of God is fully consummated or, or fully realized. So the New Testament church, what this means for us, the New Testament church lives in between these two advents. Within this already, not yet, kingdom. What I find curious from today's passage is the question raised by the disciples. Did you catch it? Um, it was verse 6. Here, here's the question. It was regarding the kingdom of God. Jesus just got done saying, I'm here to tell you about the kingdom of God. And, then, and the disciples, I imagine, were like, well, I got a question about the kingdom of God. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice how Jesus responds. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, there's a, there's a lot we can do in terms of asking why did the disciples ask this question, and what does Jesus response mean? I think, I think the question that the disciples asked in verse 6 misses the mark about what Jesus meant about the kingdom of God. Jesus does not even answer the question. You know, so it's like, I just imagine Jesus be like, what are you talking about? I'm not even going to answer that. I've been teaching about this with you guys for three years. 
Instead, Jesus refocuses the disciples' attention on what God is doing right in front of them. Right in front of them. But despite the unhelpful question, this is amazing. This is, this is so God, and he does this with us too. Despite the unhelpful question, Jesus is still ready to pass the baton onto the disciples. Man, I'm just thinking in my head right now how patient God is and how willing he is to entrust us, even when we sometimes are asking the wrong question. What grace? As Jesus passes the baton, he urges the disciples to take the same message that he preached during his earthly ministry about the kingdom of God. He says, I want you to take that message Remember what I've taught you guys, and I want you to take that to the entire world. So let's pause for a moment and learn something from the question raised by the disciples. Their question concerned physical matters. When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus was concerned about spiritual matters. They had thought that Jesus would come back to restore physical Israel. Oh, the glory days of King David. That's not what Jesus came for. The kingdom of God isn't about what you want in this physical world. It's about God. Stop thinking in temporal terms. Look up to what God is doing. Listen, how you understand the kingdom of God really impacts you and me like on a daily basis. It really does. One of the tensions Christians constantly wrestle with is this battle between sin and what God is calling you to do in his kingdom. Um, On the one hand, your your grave depravity causes you to continually build your own little kingdoms. That's what Sean Powers does. My own little kingdom. Things I want in this physical world. So I was asking myself this. How often throughout my day do I consider what God is doing. I mean, come on, we we can become so self-focused with our petty little needs and we do not give God any consideration. We don't ask the question, what is God doing today, right now? We always ask the question, what do do I need to do? We, We constantly push out God so that we can build our own kingdoms, right? And at times when God tries to knock down, we, you know, we, we try to push back again. Sure, we confess Jesus as Lord, but how often do our actions reflect the confession? You know what? The devil loves it. The devil loves that. The devil wants you to do everything you can to point your life back in on yourself. We have to fight against this tendency. Our little kingdoms will eventually crumble all over us. You want to try to build your little kingdom? It's going to fall right on top of you sooner or later. This is so important for you to hear. God does not want you to crumble under the weight of your own kingdom. He doesn't want that for you. 
He hasn't invited you into his kingdom, which is full of joy, hope, peace, mercy, grace, love. Our little kingdoms are worthless compared to the kingdom of God. And we, we, I know y'all, I love you all, but y'all can begin to apply that right now in your head. The little kingdoms that we've built in our lives. And when we do that, our eyes aren't fo- isn't focused on God's kingdom. It's focused on our own little kingdoms. We can apply that all day long. We need to frame our life around the reality that God's unstoppable, ever-advancing kingdom is actually happening right in front of our eyes. The question is this. Are you on board? Are you on board? Like, the train's moving. Are you on the train? With Holy Spirit-filled intentionality, Luke records what the Apostle Paul was doing with his life in Rome. Listen to the the last two verses in the book of Acts. It's just amazing what Luke is doing here. He, talking about Paul, lived there two whole years, talking about Rome at his own expense, and welcomed all who would come to him. And what was Paul doing? The last verse in Acts proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Do you see the thread that goes from the beginning to the end? Do you see how Luke frames Acts? He records in chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God and he passes the baton. It's like, here you go. And we read in the last verse in Acts that the apostle Paul is doing the same And here's the deal. The baton from Jesus wasn't just for first century disciples. Implanting this church, the baton has been passed to us, to you, to go, proclaim the kingdom of God, teach about Jesus with all boldness. Your inclusion is into God's kingdom matters. And your inclusion means you are active in God's kingdom. We're active. We're participants in this. So that's the first thread. Like I said, that's kind of the brightest thread throughout the tapestry here. The next thread introduced in Acts 1, which runs throughout, is the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospels, the work of God was emphasized through the life of Christ. In Acts, we read how the work of God shifts from Jesus, at least in terms of focus, to the Holy Spirit working in and through those who have been saved by Jesus. In Acts 1.5, Jesus says, Okay, guys, in a few days, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem. Something big's going to happen. Jesus had already mentioned this before his crucifixion, but he restates, it, he restates it before his ascension. And we'll see this in a few weeks when we get to Pentecost, Acts 2. For, so for a moment, pause and consider the effect that the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit has on his people. 
In Luke 24, the disciples were fearful that they might die because of the Jews. Jesus had just been crucified. We're in Acts, uh, excuse me, Luke 24, the last chapter in Luke, and they're like, they're like fearful. They're like, now just the way that they killed Jesus, now they're coming for us. Lock the door, throw away the key, and they are fearful. Now we're going to see how the Holy Spirit gives them boldness, pushes out the fear, gives them faith, and allows them to be bold. Like, like honestly. Only God can do that. Take a person from complete fear and be like, Holy Spirit-empowered faith. It's remarkable. The promise of Jesus to give the Holy Spirit does allow me to clear up confusion that can exist when we read Acts 1 and 2. Uh, the promise and fulfillment of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit does not mean the Spirit has not been at work throughout all creation. Old Testament, think Old Testament. I mean, I mean God created the earth. You know, get Genesis 1 on, on the table here. God created, and what did he do? He breathed, and the Spirit of God hovered. The Spirit's always been at work throughout all eternity. What is happening in Acts is that as the baton is passed on, the authority and power of God is being passed on. The authority and power that Jesus had during his earthly ministry are now with God's people. And that's what we're going to see throughout all Acts. We're going to see miracles, healings, like I said earlier, prison walls being uh, broken down because of an earthquake, and Paul and Silas are set free. We're going to see the word of God being preached and God saving his elect people. We read how the world is being turned upside down by Holy Spirit-filled, Jesus-loving disciples. The idea that we receive power from the Holy Spirit comes from Acts 1.8. When you couple this with the Great Commission passage in Matthew 28, Jesus also says you got this authority. Authority of God is given to God's people. Authority to do what? To, again, teach and to baptize. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you are called to be, in a sense, many Christs in this, in this world. So I hope you could see what God has been doing and continues to do since the dawn of the New Testament church. So Christian, if it is true that God has given you the same power and authority of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, the question becomes this, what are you doing with it? Do you have a big enough picture of God to know that you can proclaim the gospel without fear, to pray for someone's healing, to prophesy, to love in radical ways, to love in ways this world does not know. You do. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you do. The third and final thread I want you to see is the mission of God. Of course, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we have to mention the mission of God, but now let's make it explicit. Again, these threads are woven together throughout Acts, so you can't 
You can't see one thread without bumping into the other threads. They're all connected. Here are a, a couple points about the mission of God in Acts. Let's look again at verse 8. You will be my witnesses. You are not your own witness, but you are Jesus' witness. I don't remember what year it was, but I remember watching the LeBron James-led Cleveland Cavaliers in the uh, NBA Finals. And um, the Cavaliers organization had, it was a home game, the Cavaliers organization had given everyone in the stadium, everyone in the building, a church, uh, church a shirt um, that said witness. It was like this burgundy color with yellow letters that says witness. It was actually pretty, pretty darn cool. And um, the implication being that everyone watching the LeBron James-led Cleveland Cavaliers was going to see something great. Namely, they were going to witness an NBA Finals championship. This is not what Jesus means when he says you are to be his witness. This is not what Jesus is getting after. Jesus has zero intention for you to be in the stands watching five guys on the court doing all the work. Jesus is telling you to get onto the court, get into the game. For a moment, let me, let me deal with a couple objections that might come to your mind when you're asked to like, get into the game. So you don't, you don't think you're athletic enough to play, right? I mean, I, I'd watch that game and be like, I, ain't, I can't do that. Well, good. You don't think that? Good. Let the Holy Spirit work through you to accomplish great things for God. He will make something out of your weakness. It will be for your good and for God's glory. So good. Are you fearful what the opposition will do to you? Fine. Let the Holy Spirit show you how to cast away your anxiety and fear and be built up in faith. You don't have time to play. It's like, it takes a lot of energy. Practice. You don't just show up to the game. There's things going on before you even get to the stadium. I don't got time. Well, God challenges you to reprioritize your life so that you would find time. Does the prospect of playing with LeBron James intimidate you? Like, I can't imagine, like, walking with the Apostle Paul, like, the great Apostle Paul, you know, hearing him preach, seeing him do it, like, that would be intimidating to me. doesn't matter. If God has saved you, he, he, is, he will use you in whatever way he sees fit. Problem is, we just got to be willing to be used, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push a bit harder on what it truly means to be a witness for Christ. Some object, objections there. I'm going to push a little bit harder on this. The word witness in the Greek is martyr. You all may have heard the word martyr before. A martyr is someone willingly to uh, die peacefully 
for faith, for what a person believes. A martyr is someone who witnesses or testifies to what is believed in the face of death. Let me share a story that I hope will shake Sean Powers and all of us from these American Christian malaise that can sometimes creep in. Last week I was listening to an audiobook on the Protestant Reformation in England by Michael Reeves. And I was reminded of the myriads of disciples of Jesus Christ who were martyred because of their faith in Jesus. As the word of God was preached and read, it actually began to transform hearts and minds and to cause um, the gospel to go forth in 16th century England. A lot of people didn't like that. Here's one name I do not expect you to know, but he's one of hundreds of Protestants who were killed because of their faith in the gospel. Thomas Bennett was a teacher from Cambridge, Cambridge, England. Teacher. Under the rule of Henry VIII, Bennett became a Christian. Gospel was getting in, people were preaching, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was saved. But Protestant Christianity wasn't accepted during the time, and Protestants were rounded up and and killed. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, Bennett was executed by burning in 1531. But listen listen to this. This is what's recorded about Bennett. As he was being burned, his hands were held high in worship. And he says, Lord, receive my spirit. I could tell stories about the New Testament apostles, right? The apostles Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome about 66 AD under Emperor Nero, who was killing Christians everywhere. It is said that Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down. And Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't think it was honorable to be crucified the same way as a savior. Tradition says the Apostle Andrew also died by crucifixion. Thomas was likely killed in India due to four spears going through his body. Matthew is said to be stabbed to death in Ethiopia, and the list goes on and on. We could churn out stories all day about folks who died for being a faithful witness to Christ. What I do not want you to hear from me is that to be an effective witness for Jesus means putting yourself into a position to be martyred. That is not what I'm saying. Countless number, numbers of faithful Christians have died a natural death. What I am saying is that the cost of following Jesus means you would be willing to give up everything, to lay it all down. When, when you go outside of these walls to witness to the world, God will use you to minister to broken and hurting people. God will use you to share Jesus with hell-bound sinners. Some people will be drawn to you because of the message and the person that you treasure. That will, that will happen as you witness by God's grace. Some people will shame you. Some people are going to call you crazy. But with love, you are to be a bold witness for Jesus. You are to be bold knowing that God's kingdom has been established and it will be fully realized when Jesus returns. 
It's amazing the focus given to the scattering of the disciples in Acts as they go out and witness. Even the ascension of Jesus smells of the aroma of gospel mission. When Jesus ascended into heaven, two men showed up in white robes to give the disciples a bit of direction. They said, excuse me, they said this, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the story of the resurrected Christ isn't over. As a matter of fact, until Jesus returns, all disciples of Jesus Christ play an integral part in the story of the resurrected Christ. I find the question asked to the disciples fascinating. Why do you stand looking into heaven? I mean, it, the answer seems obvious, right? Like, Jesus, and he's up there. What, what just happened here? Of course I'm looking up into heaven. My own head is that these men in white robes want to redirect the gaze of the disciples toward the mission field. Jesus is going to come back, guys. Don't worry about when. They were constantly worried about when. When are you going to restore the kingdom back to Israel, right? When, when? Don't worry about when. Stop looking and go. Go to your neighbors, go to your family, go to your friends and to the ends of the earth and be witnesses. Once again, the mission of the Spirit-empowered church, Redemption Hill Church, is to be a witness within God's unstoppable, ever-advancing kingdom. And my hope is that we would see this, our inclusion into God's unstoppable, ever-advancing kingdom as an absolute joy and honor. An honor to be a witness to our Savior, Jesus. One final point before I close in prayer. How we participate in God's kingdom is informed by the cross of Jesus. Luke hints at this in verse 3 when he says, Jesus presented himself alive after suffering. Right? In this passage, we read the center of the gospel, which is Christ's atoning death on the cross. From the cross flows grace, mercy, and love to his people. The cross of Jesus is the focus of our mission, and it is our message. Again, we're talking about a person to this world. We're talking about Jesus. It is the power of the cross that continues to transform hearts and minds until Jesus comes back. Always got to be rooted in what God has done on the cross to save us from our sin, to give us everlasting life, to give us all the joy and happiness that we can receive because of Christ. And so we take that and we plant it in our hearts and we allow it to grow. And then we take that message and we Talk about that person, our Savior, to other people. Let's pray.